Thanks for listening to another episode of the Gifted Performance Podcast. If you're listening or watching on YouTube, make sure you subscribe, as well as hitting the like button and the notification bell so you never miss a video. If you prefer audio format, search Gifted Performance on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting service and subscribe today. Make sure you also rate and review the podcast as that helps us out tremendously. Enjoy the podcast and stay gifted. Welcome back. Another episode, a special episode, an episode that we don't do very frequently. This is like, Dom, this is kind of like streamer culture right here. This is kind of like a response video. Are you feeling, are you feeling good about this response video? I am feeling responsy today. Yeah. So this is kind of a response video. Um, In the last seven to 10 days when this video comes out, a lot of information circulating around a very high level coach. We're going to link another podcast below the Leo and longevity folks that talked extensively about this. Um, Shelby Starnes. So the conversation around Shelby Starnes, his recent um, or, or his client that recently passed away at a show, unearthing some previous clients that have passed away under his tutelage and kind of what has come out of the woodwork since then who who wants to kind of tldr the the entire situation as a whole as to what happened what has come out and what have been the ramifications of that paul do you want to bring us up to speed you were were i could but i feel like i'm I'm not the like the the too long make shorter guy ryan's (laughs) definitely the tldr guy (laughs) i'm the tldr guy (laughs) you or jason maybe all right so here's what happened Um, It was about two weeks ago. Shelby had a client that was competing. She passed out while in the tanning booth. Um, They tried to get her water, salt. The ambulance took too long to get there. She ended up passing away in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. They were unable to save her. Tragedy. Everyone, you know, saying, how could this happen? She was young. She was, you know, young on the younger side. She was a bodybuilder, lived a healthy lifestyle, all of that. Why are these things happening? And then what you get is all the individuals that come out and say, well, I can tell you what happened because here's the protocol that did it. And now you're seeing all of these protocols, these emails, these read receipts from um, the coach, from Shelby, with what we'll talk about are some pretty insane protocols. So what we're seeing now is kind of like the backlash and the fallout from that as everyone, because if you watch the other podcast and again, link it below, watch it after this one, you know, Shelby's got upwards of 500 clients. So two thousand thousands of people have worked with in the past. Now they're kind of all posting the protocols that they received and, and they are admittedly pretty insane. Um, so I'm going to preface this podcast with a couple things. The first thing is that the drugs that we are going to be speaking about in this podcast are illegal to use um, for the purpose of bodybuilding. These are pharmaceutical drugs with serious ramifications. The ultimate ramification when you take a drug, which would be death. These are drugs that if you take them in certain amounts, they will 100% kill you, which is as bad of a side effect as I can think of. Can you guys think of a worse side effect than death? Uh, I think that's I about know. as bad as it gets. Yeah, death is number one. Number one. Yeah. Um, 
So they have the side effect of death. And if you make it through the other side and you kind of survive the insane diuretic protocol, and then you do all the things that come after a show, binge eat, retain a bunch of water, have to flush that water out, continue the diuretic use. What you're seeing and what these bodybuilders will see is actually long-term kidney damage. So when you take these drugs and do these protocols, you are actually damaging your kidneys in that moment. It is an acute kidney injury, which they talk a lot about in the other episode. Um, the second piece that I want to talk about um, on the preface of this podcast is the kind of evolution of what we see as bad coaching. And I wanted to get your guys' opinion on this, on whether it's a good thing or bad thing for the industry. So five years ago when people talked about bad coaching, you know, the conversation was centered around this individual put me on a starvation diet. They put me on an elimination diet. They ruined my relationship with food. They made me do too much cardio. And I binged and I rebounded really bad after the show. And I just had a general bad experience. Now we've seen the conversation pushed forward to bad coaching is costing people's lives. So when you guys look at this situation as a whole, the situation of exposing these coaches for the horrible things that they're putting people through and paying the ultimate price here, do you see this as something that pushes bodybuilding in the correct direction, exposing this, bringing it to light, educating people? Or is this kind of like doping and weightlifting where it's just going to keep happening regardless of how much information people have. And ultimately, it's going to be the death of the sport. Which kind of side of that equation are you on? Dom, you want to start us off there? Uh, I think I think you'll see a little bit of both. Uh, I think these conversations need to happen to educate future clients of coaches out there. So that when they're given certain protocols, you know, they're a little bit more educated. They're a little bit more questionable. Um you know, asking questions, why do you want me doing this? What do these do, um, et cetera? Uh, because I think, you know, it, people talk about being a coachable client, right? It's the yes, sir, yes, ma'am, I'm going to do what I'm told, no questions asked, and so on and so forth. But in my opinion, a coachable client is somebody who can follow directions but isn't scared to ask, why am I doing this? Because at the end of the day, a coach is there to not just guide somebody, it's to educate them as well. Um, I think that's probably the most important part uh, that I'd like to get out there is this information so that, you know, if somebody works with a coach down the road and, you know, these diuretics or whatever fall into their protocol, they're questionable. Why am I using this? Why should I use this? What is this going to do? You know, all of those kind of things. So I think that's an uh, important thing because I don't think, uh, you know, obviously doping is huge in this sport, and I don't think it'll ever stop. You know, they can try to, you know, push for regulations and stuff, but they tried that, and it was a horrible turnout for the IFBB when they did that. So I think it's something that if we can educate more people on the surface, hopefully they turn into more questionable clients when they're being told to do something paul what do you think uh i i do want to reiterate uh one thing dom said first real quick is that uh like asking questions is important because in my opinion like a good client and a good client coach relationship man 
like you you want your client to feel comfortable to feel safe and also to buy in and i think like being able to educate them and on, on those things really helps for that aspect but uh sorry to interrupt you but i think educating correctly is huge because people can blabber scientific words and have no clue what they mean but to a naive client they might think oh this is legit like this is this is the actual explanation when it's completely off so i think educating correctly is huge which you know obviously comes down to the coach's education yeah and some some coaches just don't don't want to answer questions because they don't fucking know like uh, that you know like if you really want to know if you know something like try teaching it because it really makes you fucking um like examine yourself whether what you're saying is bullshit and uh a lot of times like as i find myself like you know teaching or or you know maybe making lectures or talking to clients like before I speak I'm, or type out this lecture, I'm like, is this bulletproof? Like, what kind of questions are they going to ask me? You know what I mean? And I need to be able to answer these, you know, to the best of my ability and it not be bullshit, you know? But to answer the direct question, man, I, I think uh, it, it can be good, like everything. It can be good and bad. Sometimes the pendulum swings in all kinds of directions, um, especially while you know, things are sort of heavy in the heat and stuff. So um, in, in some ways it'll be good because people will ask questions and they will see an example of a protocol that could be dangerous. And now they're more aware of that. And then maybe other coaches will, who may have been doing a similar thing and been lucky with their clients or their career or whatever, uh, may second guess whether they want to continue doing those protocols. But sometimes it swings in the opposite direction too, where some coaches may have some kind of diuretic or or water cutting protocol that may be uh, much lower risk and may provide the client with uh, what they're looking for, for their uh, competitive look and stuff. But they may now just have a negative connotation. All diuretics are bad. All uh, at every dose, at every duration. and, uh, you know, then you have people that are coming out and saying things like uh, just making it seem like it's not a usable option, that it's just going to ruin your look. You're just going to be flat. You're, you're not going to be able to get a pump and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, not understanding that there, there are a lot of complexities to every individual situation and the way that these things apply are applied matter, you know, both in the compound and the diet setup and you know hydration and all of those things and i think eventually at points in this podcast you will cover a number of things that might have gone wrong in some of these protocols so jay i know you kind of live in the the natural side of the world so this is all kind of a kind of new territory for you but from what you've seen of the situation what is kind of what is kind of your take on on everything um, I mean, at the end of the day, when I first started bodybuilding, I didn't even know that natural bodybuilding even existed. So when I got started, it was in the NPC. Like I competed for two seasons in the NPC before I even knew that a natural organization even existed but outside of like the muscle mania. And that's a very questionable natural organization. Um, so I'd already competed in the NPC. I'd followed the NPC in the, in the IFBB 
you know, since I was you know, 18 years old and I competed for the first time when I was like 31. So at the end of the day, I'd been, you know, pretty invested in the NPC IFBB and I'd seen a lot of things happen over that time um, to a lot of competitors. So what's going on now? It isn't new at all. Um, I almost want to say that there was probably times where it was worse than what it is now. Um, and I guess back to the original question, um, I don't know if it's necessarily going to change much for that reason is that we've seen it happen before, you know, there's been, uh, Andreas Munzer, that was probably, he passed away. That was like early nineties, I want to say. Um, and that guy passed away because he stayed in stage shape all the time. And they said when they did an autopsy on him, that his organs were basically liquefied. Um, and he got on stage and he just assumed that the way that he was feeling was just, that's how you feel when you get on stage and you're lean. So I don't know if things necessarily change. And like Dom brought up, you know, uh, the powers that be have made attempts to kind of control that to what you would consider as a, a bodybuilding fan to be a bit disastrous just because the level of competition was, you know, when you're at that level, attempting to get there without certain compounds just doesn't result in the look that most people are interested in seeing. Like that's just, uh, sort of the, uh, that's the gist of that. Um, I, the fellow who owns the Mr. Olympia, I think his name is Jake Wood, I believe is his name. Um, he commented somewhere on Instagram where he, he more or less said that he's going to change things, uh, that he and, uh, the Mannions have gotten together and decided that, you know, they're kind of over it, which is to me, it's kind of bullshit because the Mannions have said stuff like this before in the past and nothing has changed. Um, in my opinions on the Mannions is neither here nor there, but I guess Jake's idea is that, or it gives the impression that they're going to change judging. And I just don't, know if you could change something that's been so deeply ingrained in bodybuilding it's things have changed since the 90s that's just changing that level of condition that's just what people look for um so i don't know if it's necessarily going to change and whether or not all the stuff that's going on is for the best um it probably is going to be for the best i, I don't want to seem like the pessimist but it may be good for a little bit people may ask some questions for a little bit but there's always going to be uh, that subset that doesn't really care and they're willing to put their life on the line because at the end of the day, this is their goal and they don't, you know, they just want to get there and that's it. So I'm kind of on the I fence on whether or not it's going to be good or bad in, in the future. So the only reason I think things might eventually become a little bit different is just because we're in like somewhat of new territory with social media and how fast things spread and how uh, the serious things appear to be you know like during uh the 90s and early 2000s it may not have seemed like like pe people were dying and stuff especially you know occasionally people of like a high caliber but you probably just didn't hear about like local competitors and stuff as much but now i mean you're just blasted in the face with this stuff and we know and observe so many more people um within this like niche sport or whatever. And uh, I, I did have a quick question. When, when the IFBB, I remember they did do some drug testing for a limited amount of time. That was just for diuretics, right? Like it wasn't. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. And you can look up those photos. And I mean, <clears throat> it was like the big names and a lot of competitors didn't even compete because they were like, we don't even want to know what we're going to look like without some of these compounds. So they just didn't even show up. photos of me anyway. <laughs> yeah. But there's some photos of like Sean Ray where it doesn't, it does not look good at all. It's just not a good look. So, um, yeah. See, I think the issue with, um, with that, uh, Facebook post was you can get really conditioned without using extreme measures. Uh, I mean, think about natural competitors. They just diet a lot longer, you know, whatever they don't, they don't use anything. So to badmouth conditioning as the result of why people are dying, yeah, I'm sure a lot of people are taking unnecessary measures to get there, but it's doable without, um, because I'm sure we'll talk about like, you know, high levels of like thyroid hormone usage and stuff like that, that's coming to light now. You know, that's not the sole reason that, you know, I'd say probably half of the people conditioned on stage at high ends aren't using high end, you know, high amounts of thyroid hormone. Well, um, something I'll throw out and maybe you'll disagree. And if it's off topic, we can just move along real fast. Uh, in, in my opinion, um, and I'm not saying this is totally right or, or whatever, but I think that diuretics, because of all the other things that competitors use and the how complicated getting rid of water from those things as well as loading someone up and potentially having water and uh, electrolyte imbalances and issues there and water retention that diuretics are kind of just make things a lot easier so that like if they're removed people just have to essentially like evolve and become smarter at all the other things does that no, make I agree. sense i agree yeah like like peaking somebody with diuretics and loading them and stuff is way easier than without. And that becomes more the case, the higher the dosage becomes. So yeah. like it becomes, and that, so that's like kind of the mentality, right? Is like, if it was super easy to peak someone on X amount of this, I mean, imagine how easy it'll be on two X on three X. And then these things just keep moving up and up and up gravitating towards the extremes as most things do and that's how people end up with serious adverse effects or uh i mean yeah okay so there's that aspect but also like as divisions get bigger right and and humans are larger in those divisions they rely more on some of these other compounds to be bigger and fuller and whatever and larger doses of them and so rather than address that within the pre-show period, it's like, oh, we can, we can increase this other thing that pushes water, that, that will help get rid of the water. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so let's, let's come back to that when we talk about when we have our uh, like side effects and dosing of the specific protocol, because I think we'll get heavily into that. Um, the, the best way to probably start this conversation here is for Mr. Kuza to give us a little bit of anatomy and physiology lesson um, on the specific tissues that are being affected here. So when someone does use these diuretics, and we'll talk about the specific ones here in a second, um, what are the tissues that are affected um, and what are the mechanisms by which the action is kind of seen? Like how are we getting water out of the body. 
Yeah, so uh, I guess probably the easiest way to go about it is just like we can we can say the three types of diuretics that were used. You had an aldosterone antagonist, which was aldactone. Uh, you had a, a thiazide class of diazide, which also has a component of triamterene, which is a potassium-sparing diuretic. And then you had a loop diuretic, uh, Bumex. So if we look at like a kidney cell or like a nephron, you see, uh, you see at in the middle of the in the middle of a diagram, there's the loop of Henle, which is where we would see a lot of water coming out of the of the cell, and then from there, there's reabsorption portions that happen in the distal convoluted tubule, and then finally the collecting duct. So. I think I could share my screen. I think this would help people too. I was, yeah, I was about to say if we could get like a kidney anatomy oh image. Oh my god, this is some next level stuff. Thanks to our friends over at Riverside FM. What? Look at this. Hang on. It's like Skype inception. For real. Can you guys see that? We can. Yeah, so, um, so loop diuretics about here is uh, what would be the Bumex. So here you're going to see, um, you know, the hindrance of reabsorbing potassium, uh, sodium, and chloride, which a lot of people don't talk about, which is kind of surprising, uh, because diuretics don't just affect sodium and potassium. They affect sodium, potassium, um, chloride. You know, there's other minerals that they're also affecting. So in the, uh, this portion of the kidney, you'll see a lot of where you'll have a really high diuresis effect. And that's why loop diuretics work so well because can you define they, that? Can you define diuresis? So just uh, that I guess the easiest way to say is like the expulsion of water. So we're losing water from our blood and then our GI tract and then our muscle and then finally subcutaneously. So that's the that's like kind of like the pyramid scheme of how how water is expelled when you're in a diuresis like that. Um, so here we see Bumex, which would be acting on the kidney cell here. And that's why it works so well, because we push a lot of um, water out about 20, it's about 20% diuresis effect, which is the highest. And then here we have thiazides, which uh, inhibit the reabsorption of sodium and potassium in the distal convoluted tubule, which is the portion where we could see some reabsorption of these uh, minerals. So it stops that from happening. But with diazide, we have triamterene in there, which allows for reabsorption of potassium, which is why some people will say uh, diazide is a safer approach because we are not manipulating potassium levels. We're keeping them steady. Uh, which I'll, I'll come back on because we also saw that there was aldosterone antagonists or um, aldactone was implemented, which is not a really good diuretic, but it's a great potassium storage builder. So it, it acts as like, I think it's like a two to 3% diuretic effect. So something very minimal that you wouldn't even notice that you were like peeing more, for example, but it does have the ability to really increase potassium levels and 
that could create like a hyperkalemic state. Now, the issues with that is with potassium, we know it can have uh, issues with like heart rate causing, uh, you know, some electrical signaling issues in the heart. Um, that's why that's why people say using diazide, for example, is safer because we're not manipulating potassium levels. But it's using all these together that kind of creates a, a, like a, a storm that I would not want to be in. <laughs> Just because the amount of potassium, you know, reabsorption that was going on could have put that person, whoever used it, in a really hyperkalemic state which is really asking for something to go wrong, like, you know, heart related, in my opinion, probably heart related. So that's why a lot of like, that's why a lot of signs of uh, extreme dehydration or electrolyte imbalances are, you know, chest tightness, uh, shortness of breath, things like that. And then, you know, you'll see it too, like uh, potassium issued, like heart attacks and things like that. So that's why the combination of all three of these was kind of a recipe for disaster in my opinion. Yeah, having too much potassium, I can really slow your heart rate down too, right? Yeah, because I, mm. I believe, I'm not sure, I'm not 100% sure, but I know it has a lot to do with um, electrical signaling in the heart. Yeah, like normally potassium is an inhibitory uh, electrolyte, whereas like, uh, you know, sodium is, a uh, what is it? Excitatory. Excitatory, yeah. Um, so define, and again, I'm just going to kind of go through here. Dom, the listener isn't as smart as you, man. You're using too many big words. You got to gotta break it down for them. Teach me like I'm five. I'm the listener. Teach me like I'm five years old. When you say hyperkalemic, what, is, what does that mean? So a hyperkalemic state would be where your potassium levels in your body exceeded normal okay so it was yeah, potassium we like to see like around a four on blood work you'd be pushing like a six seven maybe even eight so you know very out of range in the high end of things um, and so if, if i'm understanding things correctly potassium because it's inhibitory would slow the heart rate down what it, what's the implication on sodium levels when you're running potassium extremely high and you're so, running these other diuretics with it? What can happen there? Well, so, you know, we can look at, like, the ion gradient of a cell. And if there's way too much potassium on one side and not enough sodium on the other side, channels within these cells are not working correctly. So, like, that membrane permeability is... Uh, is not optimal. Things are not moving the way they should. Water's not getting out. Water's not coming in. Other minerals, other important things are not transporting because there's such an imbalance between potassium and sodium. Um, and then, again, we have to remember that there's other minerals at play. Um, it's just not potassium and sodium that you know is reabsorbed and secreted in the kidneys. And I think that's one big part that is missed a lot. And it's never really talked about um, because, again, I think it's just a miss, not a, it's a miss, a miseducation. It's not having enough knowledge about the things being implemented. 
you know, just basic pharmacodynamics of some of these drugs could help you understand a lot better of what they're actually doing. You know, again, a lot of the reason why sometimes people say when they take diuretics, they get flat or they uh, can't contract their muscle is, well, you know, we're losing, we're losing calcium at the same time too. So we know sometimes, we know that has a role to play with muscle contractions as well. Um, So those are just things that, you know, I'd like to bring to light because it's just not always just potassium, sodium. Um, with those being the major player, though, I think uh, that it's important to it, it's so important to know those things, right? Because if you don't, and you're just like, oh, this just gets rid of water, you look you look like uh, tighter, or you know, like you, you just see more definition or whatever. If that's like the limit of an individual's knowledge, and I'm sure there are plenty of coaches where that is the limit of what they know, um, then you could put an individual in a really bad state if you were to just start pounding high potassium foods like potatoes and you're thinking, oh, salt's bad, and we start pulling salt, we start pulling water, like, right, like very, that's where very negative things can happen versus having some methodology to the use and sort of saying, okay, aldactone is going to increase potassium stores. So I know that I don't like need to go heavy on potassium. I might for sure probably want to keep sodium in there. And I might want to also keep water in there, right? Um, and if we know that if we have issues, it's probably not potassium. And it's like, oh, I could probably fix this quickly and easily with water and or sodium right yeah that i mean that that would be my thought process around you know um the protocols going around there is about that's another percent of the idea was there (laughs) that's another piece of this that really stands out to me that i don't think people are really talking about that much is like everyone is so focused on like their knee-jerk, oh my god, reaction to the dosages of the drugs that he was giving out. No one's paying attention to the nutritional side of things. No one's paying attention to the fact that he's also reducing their sodium like crazy. He's also reducing their water like crazy. Like, so here's a theoretical question. Sodium and water are in the equation at adequate amounts. Do you think that woman still would have died? Uh, it's hard to say because on that Leo and longevity podcast, they were talking about that. She had maybe some underlying issues that he brought to light to, I think his name is Leo. Is that, is that the host? I think so. Yeah. Um, th- cause I guess they had a phone call prior to them recording that. Yeah. And he was saying like, Oh, she had other health issues and I don't know what's true. I don't know what's not, but it's hard to say for certain, but I think it would have made, I think she maybe would have never fainted. Yeah. It's very like, it's always hard to say things with certainty, but when you see these protocols and not that, uh, you know, well, I guess we'll talk about the doses later, but you could definitely say, or you, you could pretty safely say it, 
probably it, it would have improved her chances uh, of Greatly. not of not dying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, probably to a large well, degree. But, even even with like, you know, this super dehydration approach with diuretics on top of cutting water on top of cutting sodium, you know, maybe that if she he I think it was something like they claimed that she might have had an arrhythmia or something, but regardless that all has to do with heart contractions like electrical signaling minerals balance that out i mean think about a really hot day where you're actually dehydrated and you have to go to the hospital for whatever reason they give you a bag of solution that has minerals in it yep so and and that's another piece that i i think people with other deaths in the industry have kind of overlooked people have drawn people often draw a conclusion between androgen use and the implications on the heart. So when a bodybuilder drops dead at a show, it's not so much, Oh, the diuretics may have done it. It's an electrical signaling problem. Like Dom said, they more so say, Oh, you know, they probably had issues with left ventricular hypertrophy. You know, maybe it was a, maybe it was a condition like we saw with Dallas McCarver, where there was just enlargement of the heart tissue as a whole. You know, it's, it's the AAS. It's not the diuretics. Have you guys seen that? Uh, I haven't seen that with this, but not with this particularly, I'm talking about like in the past. Yeah, I think, I think so because I think I, I think diuretics don't have as much attention as AAS do just because of how taboo AAS is to the outside of the bodybuilding world is. Um, people refer to diuretics as water pills for God's sake. Like there's coaches I know that call them water pills. So that could kind of tell you why some people shift to saying, Oh, it's, it's the gear usage. I mean, even from my perspective, I didn't know because I always maybe maybe this has been as of the past, I don't know, year or so is when I really started to pay attention to it. So, you know, from uh, the natural side, like always sort of viewing natural competitors and how that process works. And basically we try to get people ready, like you guys said, get them ready really early. The diet is really long. So when I would look at enhanced competitors, you know, at two weeks out, I'd be like, oh, that person looks like shit there's no way they're going to be ready in time and then a week later i'm like oh how did that happen even in my own sort of uh uh naivete a little bit i always just assume that like it must be the the anabolics it wasn't the diuretic like i didn't put the two together and then as of like you know stuff like this comes up and then i start to refer back to previous you know uh, things that happened in the past when it you know like that worst case scenario of death, that's when I piece together. I'm like, Oh, it's the diuretics that cause that effect sort of, you know, a week out or whatever it is. So it's definitely one of those things where I think the general population just doesn't realize that that could be like dehydration could be that much of an issue or dehydration and mineral imbalances could be that much of an issue. So Leo made a good point in his podcast when he said, he said, diuretic use is one thing that can certainly kill you that you could do on your own without even realizing because he made the he made the analogy to if you take too much insulin that's that's your fault for measuring wrong 
diuretics are a big guessing game for a lot of people because there's no way to know where your minerals are without blood draws. So he made a good point saying that. Yeah. I also kind of think about like the things that we consider to be essential, like as far as essential nutrients, like water is an essential nutrient. If you don't have it, you die. No one's like, I had my testosterone was so low or so out of whack that I died. Those (laughs) things, I don't think that's ever happened. So even from like a very superficial standpoint, you kind of have to think like water is probably the thing that will kill you. Minerals also being something that you need that's essential. If you don't have those things or if those things are out of whack, they will kill you. But hormone imbalance is probably not going to kill you at the end of the day. You're not wrong. All right, Dom, do you want to go kind of one by one through the different types um, again and talk about the actual kind of like pharmacokinetics here, the half-lives, the duration over which they work, um, and then from there we can go into the, the protocol itself that's been kind of like dispersed across the entirety of the Internet? Uh, yeah, I'll just talk about the ones that are on the Internet. Yeah, so let's stick with others. the ones that are uh, that are mentioned on the the protocol itself. Yeah, so we we had just talked about uh, aldactone, which uh, acts on the mineral corticoid receptor, uh, and and it acts on the collecting duct of the nephron, so this kidney cell. And like I was saying, it's a really poor diuretic. You'll have like a two to three percent diuresis effect from it, um, but it's a great great potassium storage builder um why somebody would implement something like that is probably to build up potassium storages so that somebody was borderline hyperkalemic uh when looking at a protocol like this because of implementing like a loop diuretic later on you know uh, the theory of behind that would be like okay potassium won't get too low because we just loaded it and we stored a bunch of it um uh, half-lives are tough because uh, the way these drugs are metabolized it's really different because if you look them up you'll see anything between like five to ten hours on some of these um i think we have to remember too that um you know aldactone is one i'm I'm fairly familiar with uh they're they're different metabolites as well that are that are metabolized yeah. at different rates so some metabolites may be stronger have stronger or weaker effects than others and uh some of those may be around for let's just say 10 hours while others may be around for a few hours yeah and you know and standard dosing in medicine a lot of aldactone is used for is um at high doses for androgen recepting blocking so like um they give it to they give it to men transitioning to women in the transgender uh, science. Uh, they give it to people for acne issues. Um, women with PCOS. Yeah, women with PCOS. So uh, that's like the main medical standpoint of what aldactone is used for. Uh, also, I mean, it is given to individuals that may have um, had previous heart or kidney-related injury that have edema as well. So, Yeah. And uh, then diazide, which is hydrochlorothiazide and triamthrine. It's two drugs in one pill. Uh, hydrochlorothiazide is a thiazide-class diuretic. Um, it acts distal convoluted tubule, and it blocks uh, 
it can block sodium and potassium reabsorption. So you secrete a good amount of sodium potassium with it. And it has about an 8 to 10% diuretic effect. And then triamterene is another potassium sparing diuretic that allows reabsorption of potassium um, that the thiazide just caused to secrete. So uh, <clears throat> that's why that's why you'll see that pretty popular, just because they safer quote unquote. And then uh, and then the loop diuretic Bumex was used, which again is probably I think the strongest loop diuretic you could take. Um, and that acts in the loop of the in loop of Henley, and you'll see a really big push of minerals out and a really big, uh, you know, a diuretic effect too. With loop diuretics, they're much more, they're much more timely. Like when you take it, you pretty much know how much long until after somebody should start peeing, for example, uh, rather like a diazide, it's harder to gauge that because of how powerful loop diuretics actually are. And what's the what's the rough percentage on that one in terms of how much diuresis it promotes? I think it was like twenty percent. And to put all of those numbers into context, in like the sports science literature, a five percent body weight dehydration is where we start to see some negative ramifications. So roughly three percent dehydration is where you can expect performance decrement if you are like a field sport athlete. Um, five percent or higher is where um, a lot of the sports literature um, will actually suggest that you, you got to get some fluids back in you and, and you got to do it now. Paul, you look like you got something to say. Oh, I was just going to say, and it's very important, you know, for individuals to know this stuff just from, because you hear um, along with talking about the dangers, there have been a lot of people that are like, oh, I always look worse on a diuretic or whatever. Um, and maybe that is true for that particular individual, but a lot of times it's very important to know the half-lives and such, not only from a safety aspect, but because that, that is very intricate and very, I guess, essential to peaking for the couple minutes that you're on stage. Cause you can completely miss a window, ruin everything and look soft, flat, or just watery all over again. <laughs> So what are some of the effects, side effects that an individual may look for? Let's say they just went into it blind and their coach threw the kitchen sink at them, the aldactone, they threw the Bumex at them, they threw the diazide at them. What are some side effects that they may look for as a result of those drugs being taken? And then what might be some side effects that they would expect that things have begun to go awry? So like some early stage, early onset side effects of like, maybe we've pushed this too far. I, uh, real quick, I, I think Dom is probably going to hit us with like the best answer, but real quick, I think it all just comes back down to, if you, if you listen to some of these people talk or read some of their posts, I mean, what are they saying? They're like, Oh my God, I was so weak that like, I could barely smile for this photo. I needed help up the stairs. My heart felt weak. Um, my heartbeat maybe felt rapid or fluttering or irregular. You know what I mean? They talk about not even being able like holding poses too long on stage because they just like seize up and they like, can't let the pose go, you know, all of that cramping and stuff. Um, 
I, I think this is one of those things that like as as it starts to progress you you should be very aware you know <laughs> yeah and yeah, some things think, to look out for from your coach would be like the quote from the other podcast from Shelby like you know this is just what to expect with this process this is not what to expect with this process this is not a natural part of this process like this is these are signs that things are going wrong actually dom like let's say you're peeking somebody and they text you and they're like man i'm cramping a lot right um it, it, whether these have been used or not you know i mean because even now it happens to natural competitors too or other yep. things they start cramping your your first thought is oh we probably need to fix something right <laughs> yeah. like something <laughs> something's off it's more I, I, sodium I or the something first thing i do is okay take some sips of water have five ounces of water <laughs> or you know have something um like water fluid related um that blew my mind when it was like no fluids no fluids. <laughs> like oh <laughs> most i mean most crazy protocols that i see it's like all right like sip a little bit of water throughout the day this one was like nah none so dom what, what would be some other effects that you might expect um so i guess you have to approach it in like a way of like they're being used to achieve a look so how are we going to gauge that look to where we want it um one thing that i was told was um a lot of mouth breathing a lot of dry mouth meant you were pretty close to there's not much water coming out of you at that point now to say that is when do we want dry mouth probably the second before they get on stage not five hours before they get on stage because then we're running into they're probably going to start you know heavy breathing after that um you know they're probably going to start feeling weak after that so i guess it's you know because they were used to achieve a look you know when side effects hit is like paul was saying it's such a timing thing to stage of when you want that to happen um and that's why like paul said like you'll see people like oh, i always look worse i always look worse but really it was probably just a really bad thing um boo scared me <laughs> but, boo but also I, had some input I guess, there uh a bad timing is a thing? huge one cramping is so big yeah. A bad timing thing as well as, I mean, a lot of times, like we saw in this specific protocol, like it, you, you still need some water and some sodium and some food, you know? So, yeah, I think uh, that the cramping thing is another big one. And then, uh, you know, there's a, a way to, if you're, you know, these diuretics were utilized, you know, how do we fix the cramping? How do we fix the faint feeling? Well, we know diuretics are going to lower blood pressure because blood volume is going to drop, and then we're going to see issues with that. So how do we how do we try to bring that back? Um, you know, water exclusively warm water because we'll absorb it a bit quicker, mixed with some salt because your ion gradient is probably off from you know all this potassium sparing diuretic use. So where now we probably need like some warm water with some salt. And that should alleviate a lot of your cramping um, because, again, that that gradient was just so off. There wasn't enough water, wasn't enough sodium. 
Uh, the, the, the whole cutting water thing is what blew my mind. I think, too, uh, I've noticed uh, when, like, a particular client or something uh, may need some sodium, they often also feel really cold. Have you noticed that, Dom? I haven't noticed that, no. Yeah, and a lot of times when you give them some, some sodium, they they get warm again. Or uh, they may even they may have had trouble like sweating before. Now they sweat really easily. Oh, and another one is uh, like skin tartar, like pulling your skin from the back of your hand, um, gauging that as how fast that comes back to your hand is a good way to see actual uh, dehydration in somebody. I mean, that's a field medical thing. Like if they have a case of dehydration. They'll check for that skin turtur, I think it's called, Turner, and yeah. uh, and then how fast that returns to the hand is a good gauge of like where water, you know, might be at. And then when you're that, when you're at that subcutaneous level, that's the that's the end. There's not much water left there, because that's where then we start to see the reversal. When we add water back in, it starts going the backwards way of what it just came down at. Yeah. That's interesting. Oh, I did not know that. So you're saying that it would restore hydration in the opposite order, so it would immediately flush heavily into that subcutaneous space? Yeah, that's why you'll see a lot of people post-show have some crazy edema yeah. with their with their ankles, hands, uh, things like that, because it returns that way. And unfortunately, that's why sometimes you'll see borderline congestive heart failure if somebody gains 30 40 pounds of water retention after a competition because there's just so much fluid you know in their thoracic like region also uh just a this is probably like a, a minor minor kind of thing but when you stand up real fast or stand up and you like temporarily go blind for a second or feel like you're about to fall backwards a lot of times that's a sign of like low blood pressure and needing sodium okay. as well yeah yeah what is that uh hypotensive yeah that would be a sign of I have hypotension all right so i dropped these protocols onto my screen what do i hit to screen share just screen screen cool Dom, you know how to do all the fancy stuff. All right, you guys seeing that? Do I need to zoom in on that at all? Hit that with a couple zooms. All right. That's pretty clear, right? Yeah. There we go. That's nice and clear. All right, so this is the first. um, And again, these were all shared with the woman who is on the Leo and Longevity podcast. I believe her Instagram tag is FierceFitSteph. Um, she's posted quite a few of these over the past few days here. Um, all right, so we look at this protocol right here. We're starting at about 10 days out, which means that the individual has 10 days of exposure, a week and a half to these drugs. Um, when we look at the application of this protocol right here, Paul, Dom, Jay, anyone, um, what are some things that stand out to you guys on this? where you're like, oh, this this kind of some 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 bad stuff might happen here. Every time it says cut water, no water, like I immediately just go Ugh, like because I yeah. mean, I 
that's the me when I think like whenever I work with a competitor and they say they looked great the week of peak week and then something happened terribly the night before, I can almost guarantee that they cut water at some point in time. See, yeah. I see that dollar sign after pl- on the plus, and I think this is where we're about to get money. This is, <laughs> this is not. <laughs> no, Jay, I think it's a good point. The zero water leaves no room for the client to kind of wiggle if they're not feeling very good, right? When you say zero oh, water, no... that means nothing. No. Not sips of water, not water as needed, anything like that. It means absolutely none. Then he even says, I like, no water until it. the following day. I'm like, so yeah. how long is that? That's like 10. So there's is that like 24 hours of no water, basically? 3.30 until so let's look at this. Yeah. Night before pre-judging, cut water at 3.30 p.m. So Still no water, water until the following day at 8.40 p.m. So that would be 12. What is that? I can't math. 24... Plus five, 29 hours of no water here. Is that what we're looking at? Is yeah. my math correct? Yeah. Yeah. So the one thing that probably stands out to me is uh, how long they're on aldactone for. And then, uh, like, I wonder where sodium was during all this. Is it there? I don't see sodium. No, no sodium on here. There is sodium, I think, on the other for one example, that I pulled up. For example, we know aldactone isn't the best diuretic, right? But we I know don't know. Like, maybe maybe it is at 100 milligrams AM and PM. Like <laughs> so, I pulled up. I pulled up. Uh, I pulled up the RX list for like actual prescribing of the aldactone. So for somebody who's hypokalemic, so who runs low potassium and they need to take something to increase potassium storages. Um, the recommendation was 25 milligrams orally once a day. So oh God. And this this is a, in a non-healthy individual with like a medical effect. You know what I mean? Yeah, like- and then, then the, the dosing for essential hypertension, so essential high blood pressure, somebody with chronic high blood pressure, uh, says, do not exceed 3.3 milligrams per kilogram per day or up to 100 milligrams per day. So if the person was over the threshold of 100 milligrams per their body weight, for example, they just said 100 milligrams was it. And that's for somebody with essential hypertension. So this was this this was a protocol that was given to a woman, a female bodybuilder or a women's physique competitor. What do you think the average weight for a women's physique competitor is? What should we say? 135 on stage? 140? 130. Yeah. 130? All right. Let's do that. Divided by two. He does two. work with some larger individuals. So, like, there may be some of these females may be 150, 100, you know. Fine, Paul. I'll round up. 145. Just trying to make a point here. So, roughly 66 kilos. Um, and this is 200 milligrams a day. So that is 200 divided by 66. So what did you say the upper threshold was? Do not exceed what? 3.3 milligrams per kilo. That is 3.3 milligrams per kilo on the dot. Yeah. So it it says do not not exceed. And it should be delivered once daily. 
So he's doing two doses of yeah. this today. Yeah. All right, so let's look at the other one over here. Actually, anything else on this one that you guys, that kind of caught your eye? Um, no, no, I think we covered it. I think here's here's a piece here's a piece that that's a little confusing that might be a little confusing this half diazide what it like what does that mean when he says half a diaz what's like what's the like what is what's going on there so diazide is usually usually twenty five milligrams of hydrochlorothiazide and then I think thirty seven and a half milligrams of triamterine okay so taking half would be twelve and a half milligrams of hydrochloro and then now, what is that? Like, now, in a clinical in a clinical scenario, what might the dosages be? I mean, if it's being used for the purpose of what it's what it's been designed for, what what dosages might you see with that? Uh, let's just see. just to contextualize it. I just want to throw out real quick. My computer is messed up, and it looked like plus was written with a dollar sign. <gasps> yeah, it was like a. I had like my cursor over over where it says plus, so it looked like. Looked like that. So Paul's <laughs> let's get this money joke was. Yeah. So, so diazide does get prescribed a bit higher sometimes um, because it is stronger. So they use it a bit more for people with like uh, congestive heart failure. Um, but the biggest issue that I see here is utilizing two drugs that do the same thing. Essentially, they don't act on the same receptors, but they both have that potassium building effect so you know i mean one of the one of the things it says here is do not use diazide with aldactone as a as a precaution on diazide's profile on rxlist.com so i i guess that's kind of like a basics kind of thing where you know even as like a child you're told not to take motrin and advil together because they're both nsaids like just you know things like that where when you're implementing two things that do the same thing, it could cause some bad side effects. Yeah, it's like Especially a cumulative effect of all of this stuff. And then as you retain more and more of that potassium and reduce sodium in the diet and continue to excrete water, you're just going to make that differential, that ratio even more skewed, correct? Yeah, and I think it just, it, this just, I mean, this just increased the risk for hyperkalemia. Yeah. It's one of those things where it's like um, obviously like medically not recommended or whatever. But um, it is uh, if somebody were to use to, in any aspect, you know, whether it's NSAIDs or these compounds or whatever, and they do similar things like you got to be so careful with dosing, right? You really got to know what you're talking about and what you're doing. So here we can actually see in this email, it looks like an S from, you know, a Gmail account. Could really be anyone from S. This is obviously um, Steph, who, who is saying, Stephanie, who is saying she got this from um, Shelby. On the aldactone side, we see roughly the same. Starting at 25, building up to 50, peaking at around 100, which Dom has already talked about. Completely excessive, way outside of what anything a, a doctor would give you for you know its actual purpose um, of what it was designed for. Um, diazide here compared to the other one, it looks like starts a little earlier, so it looks like we're starting it at three days out. So 
Dom went or Paul or Jay, whoever went. When we look at applying this at three days out, would would the increased exposure to that make the problem even worse? So just further drive that imbalance of potassium. Or is it roughly the same if you take it for one day or two days or three days? Oh, it's got to be worse. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a, right, basic, it just kind of makes sense. Like, longer plasma exposure to a drug, you know. That That is largely, there, there are multiple reasons for it, but that is largely why, um, and, and usually the, the methodology behind aldactone earlier is to build those potassium stores, like I said before, so that um, you don't have to manually do it with food. And if something goes wrong, you know that it's likely a sodium-related issue, or more likely. And that, um, so, like, yeah, I mean, that that's the reason for it, that, that multiple-day buildup. So duration is a part of it as well. And you can see... If you ever watch somebody use some of these compounds, you can see the effect um, from from day to day or every few days. All right. Yeah. So looking so up a... spirolactone, looking up spirolactone, which is aldactone, and triamterene, which is part of diazide. Um, using spirolactone together with triamterene is generally not recommended. Combining the medications may increase the cause of hyperkalemia, which in severe cases can lead to kidney failure, muscle paralysis, irregular heart rhythm, and cardiac arrest. You may be more likely to develop hyperkalemia while taking these medications if you are dehydrated. And then regular or long-term use of NSAIDs on top of this may increase your risk. So, you know, there's so many things that, like, you could see as issues, you know, think about, I'm sure there's athletes that take Motrin towards the end of prep because they're achy and their joints hurt and things like that. So it's just, you know, it's just stuff to be, you know, weary about. Like, and I think I in the other, they talked about a couple stories where individuals, um, were hospitalized with rhabdo. So when you look at kind of that right up right there, does that make sense as to why someone might get rhabdo, that severe kidney damage that they're talking about? Absolutely, dude. And and one thing that I want to touch on too, with, with especially with these av- aggressive protocols, but anytime a diuretic's used, and, uh, you know, and we're looking at this duration with the doses and with the three different types of diuretics, like your body is always sort of seeking some kind of homeostasis. So the danger just does, doesn't just end here. Uh, there's a potentially and most likely going to be a very strong rebound effect once these drugs uh, are discontinued, right? And uh, shit, what was the thing you just asked? Um, so we were looking at rhabdo. I was talking about rhabdo a little bit. Well, yeah. That might... yeah. So... And Leo mentioned this in his podcast, anytime you dehydrate to this degree that, you know, there's uh, the potential for acute kidney injury. Um, But not only that, when you uh, come off these things and you rebound and you're probably eating um, absurd amounts of food and and things like that, like that can continue on because your blood pressure then is going to be increased, 
you know, or most likely drastically, if you are one of those individuals that happens to put on 20, 30, 40 pounds in a matter of days. I think the total, the, the total strain on the body over these 10 days, or if you, let's include the couple days post show, we'll call it 14 days, is enormous, right? Not just on the kidneys, but on the heart as well. Because you have to also consider the fact that these individuals, according to some stories that we've heard, some protocols that we've seen, that we've seen are taking ephedrine, they're taking clenbuterol, they're taking thyroid medication, and all of these cumulatively are extremely hard on the heart. Post-show, you know, you're spiking your blood pressure like crazy. You can see why the incidence of cardiac arrest is starting to be on the rise. It's, you know, it's not one thing in particular. It's a, it's a cumulative effect on the body. I think, I think ancillary um, drugs are more dangerous than AASs. When we look at causes of death. So someone, when this, you guys familiar with the movie, bigger, faster, stronger. Yeah. In that movie, one of the individuals in there was talking about, you know, he was making a case for the safety of, of anabolic androgenic steroids and saying, like, listen, if it's such an epidemic, where are the bodies? And someone posted that quote and said, here are the bodies. And my response to that is exactly what you just said, Dom. It's like, well, it's not really the AAS so much that's doing it. Sure, that's driving part of it. There are obvious ramifications there. But really, like you said, Dom, it's the ancillaries. It's the stuff over here that's causing this acute trauma to the body that's pushing these individuals over the edge to death. Would you agree with that? No, I, I would. Um, you know, you brought up clenbuterol, and some of these protocols were paired with very high high doses of clenbuterol um, and, and thyroid, um, but clenbuterol specifically we know has an effect on potassium. Uh, so, you know, again... Uh, issue there it's also a beta 2 receptor drug so you're going to see increased heart rate um you know and then training on top of that all those things just add up on top of each other and i think it's the mineral imbalances at the end of all this with doing you know other things for so many weeks beforehand is where that recipe starts and it's just this is the end this is the last page of the of the recipe book yeah, my, that's my opinion of things. So this is a new one right here that we're seeing Bumex. We didn't see this on the other protocol. Dom, you were saying that this is the loop diuretic. We've talked about this before we started recording. We, we talked about this dosage right here, this one milligram. And you told me something that I didn't know about Bumex. Um, do you want to share that? Yeah, so I'm just going to look it up. So I'm exactly right. But uh, so in... In healthcare, Bumex is 40 times more potent than Lasix, which is another popular loop diuretic. You'll see Lasix prescribed a lot for congestive heart failure. Um, like, even my grandmother is prescribed Lasix just because she has congestive heart failure. It's what keeps her edema down. Um, and it's like, I think it's every, every gram of Bumex is equal to 40 milligrams of Lasix. So like just Every to put that, I'm sorry, not gram. Say that. Oh, milligram. Yeah. So just to put that in perspective, because uh, Bumex is not one that you see very often in protocols, and Lasix is already one 
that you will probably most often see uh, warning against and some people will have very strong opinions of the four. Like there are some people that are very adamant and say you should never use Lasix. Not, and I'm, I'm not saying that I'm not advocating for or against it either. But just to put that in perspective, if, if Lasix is already one that uh, gets heavy criticism and this is potentially 40 times stronger, like just that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, uh, I, I think on that podcast, Bumex was used in a couple doses, not just one. People, that lady I think, pe- that I think people talking. are familiar with Lasix, whether they know it by name or not. Um, it's very popular in horse racing. So they will pump the horses full of Lasix like the night before the race or the day of the race that morning so that they flush out a bunch of water and then they run faster because they don't weigh as much but the negative that comes with that is that these horses in droves are crossing the finish line and dropping dead and what are they dropping dead from they're dropping dead of a heart attack they get across the finish line they go into cardiac arrest and they die and now a lot of like the preakness the kentucky derby they're now testing for these compounds so I know at least 40 at, X at least one. on the shit that kills horses. This is starting to get yeah. a little crazy over here. I know at one point, maybe it still is, but I remember hearing of Lasix a lot within powerlifting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. IV Lasix, to be specific, um, because of how fast it works. But IV Lasix is still 20 times weaker than one milligram of oral Bumex craziness so let's let's work our way down to this water here as we wrap this up right now stay at two and a half gallons daily cool so it's a good amount of water um saturday we start to work the water up seven days or seven days out to up to two days out it looks like we're at three gallons daily on thursday we take a huge drop so remember thursday is also where Aldactone dosages are up at 50 milligrams a day. Diazide is in the plan now. We are reducing water to one liter upon waking, 16 ounces um, at 8 p.m., nothing else. And then Friday, one day out, so a full day out from competition, we see 16 ounces of water upon waking and nothing else for the day. You wake up, you have your two cups of water, you are done for the day from there. When you go to the gas station and you see those Gatorade bottles, the smaller versions of the Gatorade bottles, those are 20 ounces. So we're four ounces less than that, and that's the water for the entire day. This is also when we see Bumex enter the equation. So Jason, as someone who has seen kind of like water cutting protocols quite a bit over your career this one remove all the diuretics remove all the drugs from the equation would you say would you consider this to be an extreme water reduction protocol here oh i mean yeah if you remove all of uh the diuretics uh, at the end of like when i see it i think you know the primary places uh that or i guess the one thing that water kind of 
effects in this case is blood pressure. So I think that you start messing around with hydration levels, especially to this amount where you're like jacking water up and then quickly bringing it down. Then it creates, uh, you know, a cascade effect in which your blood pressure is affected. And then you get on stage and then you can't get a pump. Uh, You lose any form of vascularity. Uh, That's where people say they tend to look flat. And that's probably the reason why when they start messing with water like this. So that's the very first thing I think is blood pressure. Like what's the effect here of jacking up water and then basically cutting water in that way. And that's just over my experience. That's usually what I see is people think. And a lot of that comes from, you know, the enhanced side where people try to do this on the natural side. And it's like, well, that's not how that works, even to a a greater extent uh, without all the uh, pharmacological aids. Standard rehydration literature. I've had better success cutting weight with an athlete, giving them more water than their norm, than I have with any type of water cutting. But would would you think that the diuretics completely override that natural signaling for the body to hold on water, like hold on to water, if you were cutting this without them? Like, is that the point of having this stuff in here? I don't know because. I don't know because he because looking at this diazide is not implemented until two or three days out, so water's already practically non-existent. Coming down, and then you're giving Bumex. You're giving okay. Let's what time do you an athlete in prep one day out probably wakes up at six in the morning, seven in the morning. So give them sixteen ounces of water upon wake and nothing else. So they're up from like seven. So 12 hours. So they're up for about 15 hours and then you give them a Bumex and they haven't had water for 15 hours. So what is that Bumex really doing at that point? This person's probably already super dehydrated. So Steph in that podcast mentioned that she lost. What did she say she lost? It was either 13, 16 pounds, 16 pounds. So she lost 16 pounds over two days. The standard rehydration literature says that you should have a pint per pound, which is 16 ounces of fluid per pound that you lose. She lost 16 pounds and had 16 ounces of water. So she lost 16 pounds, had one pint of water. Pretty sure the rule is not one pint or one ounce per pound of weight that you lose. That is not how these things work. It's, it's kind of crazy, right? Because the job of these compounds is to push water among specific electrolytes out. And like that's doing the job for you. You don't have to put a lot of pressure on that job yourself. You know? <laughs> it's Yeah, it's beating a, beating a dead horse at that point. It's really the ultimate form of overkill here. Um, anything down here in sodium that kind of catches your eye? So it looks like uh, normal high now. No reference as to what that actually is. Great job. Who needs numbers when you can just say four words? Keep so normal. lower to one teaspoon. So one teaspoon of sea salt total for the day spread evenly across your meals. So this is where <laughs> I have an issue is on Wednesday. Lower to a half teaspoon, which a half teaspoon would be, depending on what kind of salt, anywhere between 800 to 1,000 milligrams of sodium, and that's it. And what's unfortunate here is this sticker on the story is covering up. You can't see the rest. You can't see the rest. 
Um, is anyone under the assumption that sodium came back up? <laughs> That's rough to laugh at, but yeah. What is uh, what is standard? What is the uh, recommendation for milligram sodium? Uh, Two thousand for women, twenty five hundred for men. That's that's like normal two thousand calorie. That's diet. the RDA, correct? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Do we know the sports literature for it? So I want to say there there's a lot of um, controversy and debate. It's hard to nail down accurate numbers because a lot of that comes down to what types of activity you're doing, Sweat, how right? much are you sweating, are yeah, you how much fluid your your whole diet, everything. I want to say in some athletic populations for a male on average four grams, you know, but these are people doing like that are performing, you know, um, yeah, potentially but, but, heat, but like, to, to agree with you on that four grams for somebody on diuretics on water loading in the beginning of the week, four grams seems where it should be because of how hard you're pushing diuretics and whatnot. No, yeah, you may, especially for a female, a lighter female, like 50 kilograms or something like that. Like, I don't think it would be absurd to have a female, like, taking in three grams of sodium or something along those lines, you know? Give or take. Absolutely wild. All right, I'm going to stop sharing this. We've made it to the end of it. Um, One thing to say is that these are not all the protocols. This wasn't two people. This wasn't two emails that we saw. I mean, from all accounts from Steph, the woman, Stephanie, there are hundreds of these or well over a hundred. She said in that other interview of individuals who have reached out with almost the exact same protocol. And, and something that we said before we wanted to start the podcast was like, this isn't just Shelby. Like, Shelby is bearing the brunt of this. I mean, you see that in the name of the episode that they recorded. Shelby Starnes, the guru of death. Shelby's not the only one who has had people die under his under his tutelage. Like, there have been other people that have been down this road. Um, if you ever watch the YouTube videos, uh, interviews with the pros, it's uh, Tom Platts interviewing pro bodybuilders. There's a very large African-American gentleman who talks with a higher-pitched voice. His face is blurred. There's no way to know who that is. But let's just say, maybe, speculate that it was Ronnie Coleman. Ronnie tells a story about his coach at the time, Chad Nichols. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Chad Nichols at the time was writing up his protocol Ronnie hopped on a plane and took what I'm assuming was one of these loop diuretics, probably something like Lasix, and started going like extremely, extremely dehydrated on the plane ride to where he had to like pull one of the stewardesses and like just like bring me all of the water that you have. And he said that he almost died on that plane ride. So like this isn't exclusive to one coach. This stuff is is rampant. So what's the path forward here? Let's conclude this thing with like a path forward of like, what do we, what do can, we do to fix this situation? Can, can I say something real quick? I don't Absolutely know. If, if we can not. cut this out. We can cut this out if it's a direction that we don't want to go. Um, but I just want to throw out that in my opinion, and I could always be wrong, but in my opinion, when you have an individual 
that clearly um, just by looking at the uh, the clientele that he works with you know probably have upper end use of uh, PEDs and uh, also along with lots of rumors that are turning out to not really be rumors um, and they refuse to talk about P the PED use to any capacity in any form and only only work with females I think that's that's a red flag you know because in my opinion um, and I've and this is from working with sort of females myself and picking up females that have come from other coaches like there there's a very there, there's a lot of different stuff going on psychological wise you know and like especially in the female community peds are not at, they're even more taboo you know and even less talked about and so a lot of times females will sort of approach a coach and be like oh uh i know that certain things are used i want to compete at a high level I, I would like to do what it takes and so they tend to be very loyal and until they're burned out they will do whatever you ask them to do and uh because they don't really have an idea of like what is sort of what is normal what should be used what doses should be used um there, there's just a lot of naive naivety is that yeah, a word nailed it Okay, nailed it. Probably not. And uh, going along with that, um, shit, there was something else. Uh, they're trusting you. They're trusting you to just like, oh, not only can he give me these things and take me to a high level, they're like trusting you to know how to do it with the risk management um, factored into there. So in my opinion, and, and I, I don't know Shelby like to any degree, but I, I think that's a huge, all, all of that is just a huge red flag, like only working with females and, uh, the, especially these high level ones. And in my opinion is somewhat predatory. <laughs> it, it's, it's predatory and it's kind of like gatekeepy, right? It's like, if you're a woman's physique competitor, a woman's bodybuilder, and you want to go pro, who do you hire? You hire Shelby. Shelby like the number one guy. You hire Shelby. Like that's like that's who it was. So it was like, and I don't know if this was intentional by him, but it was like he curated this roster of extremely talented individuals so that he could do like what you said, Paul. Like Paul, like like prey on them. Do what he wanted. And I don't know if it was like a money thing or an ego thing or like a sociopathy thing but it was like it just drove this behavior and from all accounts the protocols have gotten more intense as the years have gone on so maybe he's this dr frankenstein crazy scientist who's like let's just see how far we can take this and if people die they die i think it's interesting that you know you brought up uh allegedly ronnie doing that interview allegedly, allegedly. And Our daddy uh, King. allegedly may or may not have been Ronnie, but, you know, <laughs> but, uh, that story, the interesting thing about that is that Ronnie still worked with Chad Nichols the following season. So yep. he let someone basically, he admitted the fact that there's a good chance that Chad Nichols basically gave him a protocol that possibly killed him 
but he was so driven to continue on the path that he was on that he just went back and said, no, it's cool. Here's more of my money that, or no, here's more of the, I'm going to give you more of the percentage of my winnings, but I'd like to have more of that protocol, please. And so if you read some of the comments that are on social media, it kind of goes back and forth. Some people are blaming the athletes for uh, allowing themselves to be subjected to these protocols. And then some people are blaming the coaches for, you know, basically giving the athletes these protocol and, and you know, taking advantage of the trust of the athletes. And it's kind of both people, not, I can't say that a person who's passed away, they're necessarily at fault, but there has to come a line as an, you know, as an athlete where you say, listen, and the, the one thing that gets me about this as a parent, you know, they had children, you know, it seems like that seems to be the common theme. It's like a lot of these people are leaving other people behind and typically children, so you've decided as an athlete that the most important thing for you is to reach this extremely arbitrary goal. Because at the end of the day, we've discussed this before, nobody is racking up millions of dollars as a competitive bodybuilder except, what, 10 people, maybe, <laughs> in the no, entire I'm... sport. <laughs> like, like, maybe 10 people total, especially on the women's side, maybe two or three, maybe, tops. So at the end of the day, you decide as an athlete that uh, your children, your family, the people that care about you, you know, we're going to push them off to the side so I can reach this arbitrary goal at the end of the day. So as athletes, I think there needs to be some thought of like, hey, what is the most important thing to me in life? I should probably start asking some questions about the things that I'm taking at the end of the day. So at least I have a rudimentary understanding of what's going on. Um, and then sort of look at the historical data and say, well, it's happened before using these diuretics and pay attention to the fact that usually people aren't passing away six months out from the show. They're passing away the day of or the day after or right before the show. So there must be something happening in that week of pay attention to that. And as coaches, it seems like a lot of this stuff is I'm sorry for going on too long here, but as a coach. It seems like they're just giving out a bunch of protocols. And whenever I put someone into a prep or especially a peak week or the day before their show, I'm put, I'm giving myself enough ways to get out of whatever's going on. So if I look and I see a result that I don't like, I can make an adjustment. With some of this stuff, it seems like here it is. And there's like, oh, oh, sorry. I, I hope you make it till tomorrow sort of situation. So it's like they're they're drawing up these very generic protocols that it seems like a bunch of people are getting regardless of how their size or gender or any of those things. And they're not giving themselves a way out because that's just what's worked for so long. And you're putting people's lives at risk for that reason. I mean, it just, it, it blows my mind because everybody's kind of at fault here. You can blame judges. You could, you could try to blame the organizations. You could pop that's, and that comes down to dollars and cents at the end of the day. But a lot of it, most of it has to lie in the laps of the coaches and the competitors. Somebody's either got to start caring about themselves enough and caring about the people that care about them. And then the coaches just need to start caring about their athletes enough to put in the work and not necessarily just think about how much change they're putting in their pockets. Dude, yeah. I want to just add to that. Like, I think it's so important like you're right. I think heavily, heavily it falls on the coach because these people are, they're paying you because they, they're trusting you. Right. 
um, they're trusting you to do the right thing as well as, you know, uh, help them be successful. But like the coaches, like us coaches, we should be educating, but we should also be saying like, Hey, you need to educate yourself. Like I've told people too, people have asked me about certain things, uh, diet, supplementation, training or whatever. And, you know, I, I've told them like, also you should go read about this yourself and not just take my word for it. Um, and you should develop some questions or if like we're scheduled to talk about something, I'm like, go read up on it. So that way, when we talk, you have some questions and, you know, we can have a conversation back and forth because there does need to be some ownership, right? You know, um, and, and sometimes like, you know, like that, that ownership needs to be there because, uh, like, I don't know. I, I don't want to go there. Never mind. But I think it's important as well for clients to take ownership of some of the good and bad potential outcomes, you know, but heavily it does fall on the coach. Um, I think clients should ask questions. I think clients shouldn't be embarrassed to bring up feeling a certain way. This whole I'm a badass mentality. Bro, if you're not feeling good a day out or the day before, you need to say something, especially if, you know, you're using a diuretic or you're using PEDs or whatever. Bring to light what you're feeling because maybe 95% of the time it's how you should be feeling, but that 5% could potentially save your life. So bringing that to light. Um, and then like Paul said, like, you can't just take your coach's word for it. Read up on literature, read up on things that, you know, a lot of what bodybuilding is, was designed medically first, and then made its way into bodybuilding. So there's a lot, you know, there's a decent amount of information on the medical standpoint of things, where you could read up on how things work, how they should work, what to expect as potentials, uh, issues, and things like that. And then, you know, I think, uh, like Jason said, it comes down to coaches and clients, I think, together on whose fault this could be. You know, we see the big drift into I'll, I'll die for this sport mentality, which, again, is maybe a bit too tad selfish. Like, I get, like, you know, I got to train and miss my nephew's birthday maybe, but, like, the whole I'll die for this thing is a bit, that's a way over my head. I'll never understand that. Um but then I think as a coach, too, there's a proper education point that needs to come into play. Like, I know somebody personally who was given, this is how it went down. And I found out afterwards, because I would have told her to never have done it. Her coach recommended, take this water pill the night before. Water pill. That was the name. Water pill. So afterwards, she told me she took the water pill. Whatever, the next day goes by. I said, hey, what was that water pill? Like, what was it? And it was a Bumex. Like, and and she didn't know until afterwards. And she had no clue what Bumex was. And I was like, dude, you know, that's that's a really strong diuretic. You probably sh didn't need it. And you probably shouldn't have taken it. Under the guidance of take this water pill. <laughs> So I think there's a lot of coaching education that should happen too, which I think we're seeing a lot more of now, especially with 
who the more popular coaches are becoming, you know, there's a lot more um, education-based stuff. For sure. And I think Leo had a really, really solid point because I was thinking, what is the best way um, to kind of, for the the league to, or IFBB and NPC and stuff to to try and prevent this from happening. And I was like, well, like maybe it's drug testing, you know, but you know, I, I don't know if it should go that far. needs to go that far, you know? Uh, but I think that investigations, when things like this happen, like, I think like, uh, when, when shit like this happens that the league should be like, Hey, I need all this. I need all your email correspondence with this client, all the documents, everything, you know, from, however long you've worked with them and you better be able to provide it. You know, I think back to when UCF had a kid with sickle cell trait and coach George O'Leary at the time base was, you know, they had a bad game. They lost whatever conditioned them and the kid ended up passing away. They basically ran this kid to death and it's like the saddest story because there are like, uh, first-hand accounts of them like picking this kid up and like like moving his legs for him like he is like unconscious and they're just like picking him up and taking him through the sprints and the dude is dead before the hospital even or the dead before the ambulance even gets there absolutely tragic what happens in this scenario the ncaa is up in ucf's ass getting every single piece of information they possibly can where's the ifbb Where's the NPC? Where is the windfall when these people die under a certain coach's tutelage? It doesn't exist. They die. People are upset about it for four weeks. People record podcasts about it. They post Instagram stories. Got hundreds of DMs with all these accounts. Three weeks later, it's fucking gone because they care about something else now. And that coach says, whew, that was a close one. Time to go back to being a sociopath. And there's literally no, there's no implications for it. I think that, that would happened be, I to think... the university. That happened to, at the university I went to when I was there. The swim team, uh, they they conditioned a swim like workout so intense that like seven kids were hospitalized with rhabdo right after. And the NCAA came in and did the same exact thing that they did at UCF. They fired like four guys. One was charged by like somebody's family. Um, so like yeah again like where's your sanctioning body at that point like you know somebody that needs to oversee but then you know that you where do you go from that like do you make coaches register with the mpc as a mpc registered coach do you make you do, you know what i'm saying like do they have to receive a certain accreditation certification pay a fee something to be sanctioned by an overseeing body which i think would be a good idea and it's crazy because the NPC loves charging people for stuff. So why wouldn't they just charge? Like, not trying to be like a dick or funny here, but like the NPC is notorious for charging you in every possible way they can. How about a two hundred dollar year subscription from all the coaches that are putting people in these NPC shows? USAW does it. Some of it is USAPL maybe. does it. The IPF does it. Like these other organized bodies that crossfit does it they all have it bodybuilding is the only one that doesn't do it i think you got to follow the money i mean that's usually when you 
start to think of the reasons why certain things are the way they are. I mean, the NCAA has a lot to lose if they're known for just killing kids. You know, so they're going to get on that very quickly because they generate a ton of revenue. The IPB, in comparison, I'm sure they're like, oh, that's, you know, the, the NCAA is probably like, how much money do you make in the IPB? Oh, that's cute. Like, that's that's yeah. nice of you to do that. So a little bit of it is it's it's almost it could be bad business for the IFBB or the NPC to start doing things like, you know, making coaches uh, responsible for the things that they do. their competitors, because if the quality of competitors change, then maybe the circus show that we all love to see changes to such a degree that they start losing some money. So at the end of the day, it, it's it's like bodybuilding is it, such uh, a it's niche a freak show. Right. It's like, that's what people want to see. And that's the way it's always been. They can say whatever they want to say. And just like when they started drug, pe- drug testing people in the nineties, it only took one show for them to go, Oh no, 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 no. We can't have this. Uh, let's go back to the thing we were doing before because that worked. If some people die, they die. I mean, but we need to make uh, some of that cheddar. And uh, I don't know what, or I don't, I don't know if there's a way. And I, again, I don't want to seem like the consummate pessimist when it comes to bodybuilding, but I'm not sure if there, cause the same, there's things that happen in the natural federations that, I mean, at the end of the day, it's like, it's, it's trying to drive money into something that very few people are interested in. So any adjustment they make to anything that's going to affect that amount of people that are interested in that thing it's going to seem like very risky and they're going to try to, you know, there's going to be a lot of pushback in the end of the day. I mean, I don't know what this I like that you, you say, know? I like that you say circus. Cause it's like when you go to the circus and you're seeing like the strongman act and they're like driving the car on top of like Samson von Magnuson's leg and his legs snap in half and he dies. And what does everyone in the crowd do? They're all like, Oh my God, that was amazing. Yeah. We want to see more. Yeah, it's like- you see a tiger jump through a flaming hoop and you're like, ah, oh, the tiger might get burned, but ah, oh, fuck that tiger. This is fun to watch. Right? No, but here's my kind of, so you're right. Like it could negatively impact the quality of competitors or whatever. Um, but I feel like just don't kill someone is, is a very small, <laughs> you know, step one. like you, great, great start to the like, process. <laughs> Like basically, you know, this thing, this, this little addition to the organization, they're basically, they basically would say, Hey, we don't care what you do. Just don't kill somebody and don't die, you know? And if it does happen, just don't let it be your fault, coach. You know, sometimes people do crazy stuff and it happens, but if we have all your email correspondence and your text and you did everything you could to prevent it, you didn't tell them to do something crazy, then, then you're off the hook, you know, like circling all the way back to before we even started recording it's like little caesars there's one rule just don't kill anybody <laughs> oh i'm sure little caesars <laughs> don't kill anyone in a little caesars either that's little caesars has some like small small font rules as well all right guys that is going to wrap us up for the day um the takeaway that i will leave with you guys with athletes coaches if you want to protect yourself mm-hmm. Don't get wrapped up in the methods. Always understand the principles. Don't get wrapped up in a single method, a single compound, a single dosage, or application of any of those. Understand how these things work. Reach out to qualified individuals like the folks on this podcast right here. Get their take on it. They understand these things. They've clearly demonstrated that they understand the cellular physiology that's going on here. 
what the effects are, what the side effects are. So make sure you can have that informed discussion with your coach or you should be very wary. Cancel the plan. There's no shame in saying, you know what? That plastic trophy is not worth all these water pills or whatever they're they're making you take. Um, second I'm piece not that qualified for anything. I don't right. know why people listen to me. I'm not qualified Paul alone. to do just, anything. I was just reading off Wikipedia. <laughs> um, <laughs> the second piece of this little outro right here is that next week Dom and I are going to be recording a podcast. I'm not sure if it's going to get push released, so you may see it in two weeks. We are doing a podcast with Chris Tuttle, and it's IFBB Pro Chris Tuttle. Sorry, people get pretty pretty touchy about that one right there. Um, IFBB Pro, Chris Tuttle, we are going to be talking about priorities in bodybuilding and life after bodybuilding, which is a perfect segue out from this podcast here. We will see you on that next one. Until that point arrives, everyone, stay gifted. Throw it up, Jay. Bye. Yeah.